Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. Hello and welcome to Wild Stories from Western Australia's Past. I'm your host, Carly Florison. I'm a writer, a storyteller, and as you might be able to guess, I am just a bit of a history nerd. Really great to have you joining me again today for another really fascinating story from Western Australia's past. Before we begin, though, I would just like to acknowledge the First Nations people of this country, and in particular, the Noongar people of the Esperance area, which is where I'm recording this podcast today, and the Noongar people of the Wheatbelt area, which is where, where this story takes place. The First Nations people of this land have a, a history and a connection with country that goes back tens of thousands of years. And I'd just like to acknowledge that right at the outset and pay my respects to their leaders past and present. So this particular story that we're going to talk about today is quite a funny story. It's a story of man versus bird, and not just any bird, but the emu, which is quite a ludicrous bird in itself. So this is the story of the Great Emu War. If you've never heard the story of the Great Emu War, well then I really think you're going to enjoy this one. There have actually already been plenty of podcasts done about the Great the Great Emu War, and there's plenty of information floating around about this particular saga. Lots of stories and articles, but I wanted to do this story as I felt like it was a really distinctive Western Australian story, but I was going to leave it till a little bit later on. I've decided to do it now as I've just heard some really interesting some interesting news. The story of the Great Emu War is going to be made into a movie featuring John Cleese and Rob Schneider with Australian comedian Monty Franklin contributing to the script. It's just been announced recently and the movie is due for release in 2022. So as you listen to this story, just imagine what kind of movie might be made about this and also imagine the roles that could be played by John Cleese and Rob Schneider. It's also going to be a slightly shorter episode, but again, like I said, it's quite funny. There is a bit of a content warning, though. This story does contain mention of emus being killed, so if that's not something that you're into, maybe give this one a miss. Now, this story begins at the end of the First World War, when large numbers of returned soldiers were given land to settle in Western Australia under the Returned Soldiers Settlement Scheme. This land was often very marginal, The soldiers had to clear it and then learn how to farm the land in a hurry. This scheme was based on a romanticised ideal of farming as it existed in England with many small land holdings, and this was not really feasible in the WA outback, especially in some marginal areas. Nationwide, 23,000 farms, that's over 9 million hectares, were granted to returned soldiers under this scheme. In WA alone, over 5,000 soldiers were settled under the Returned Soldiers Scheme, but by 1929, only 3,500 of those soldiers remained on the land. So clearly it was quite a difficult task and many soldiers ended up giving up and walking away from their land. Also, clearing the land of native trees and bushes and replacing replacing them with short-rooted crops or bare land often resulted in rising salt, which ruined a lot of the land. As the Great Depression hit, the government encouraged farmers to increase their wheat crops and they promised to subsidise wheat prices. But as the Depression worsened, wheat prices fell worldwide and the government failed to deliver on the promised subsidies. In 1930, the farmers in the Wheatbelt area of WA were actually having a really good year, but the falling wheat prices meant that they'd be getting much less for their crops than they'd they'd anticipated. 
They threatened to withhold their crops, ending up in a standoff with the WA government. But then, in 1932, for the farmers of the Northern Wheatbelt area, another disaster struck. This area is known as the Campion District, and it's not far from where Muckenboodin is now. A town called Campion was established in this area in the 1920s, named after Sir William Campion, Governor of WA, but these days the town site is abandoned. The area is 300 kilometres east of Perth and 47 kilometres north of Meriden. So if you know the area, it's quite dry and quite marginal land at the best of times. But then for these farmers, as I mentioned, disaster struck. This is the way the Sunday Herald described it. The enemy is the tough, prolific, gangling marauder of the sand plains, whose species, ever since the beginning of agriculture in the state, has invaded in a frenzy of hunger some of the finest fields at the time of ripening of the harvest, to shear off crops with voracious beaks, and to trample with great webbed feet 100 plants into the earth for each one eaten. Yes, they're talking about the emu. In 1932, an estimated 20,000 emus descended on the Campion area. They caused absolute havoc, not only eating the crops but also trampling them and sitting in them. The farmers could see their wheat crop being destroyed before their very eyes. Now, before we go on, let me just tell you a little bit about emus. Emus are migratory and they often travel with the seasons to find food and water and good breeding land and they can travel huge distances. In their breeding season, they usually travel from coastal areas to the inland areas, adapted perfectly to the dry conditions of the WA inland. Now, just imagine that you're an emu. You're wandering around and you discover this area of delicious green food, dams full of water and soft greenery for nests. What's not to love? Rather than moving on to another area, you'd stick around for a while, wouldn't you? As their usual grazing land was gone, and emus being highly adaptable, they quickly adapted to enjoying the wheat crops that the farmers had grown. And while we're talking about the emus, let me tell you another couple of facts about these birds. Adult emus are usually 1.6 to 1.9 metres in height. They can sprint at up to 50 kilometres an hour. They've been known to go for weeks without eating, and they usually breed in the winter. In the breeding season, the female courts the male and the female emu can lay several clutches of eggs in one season. But then the male emu is the one who incubates the egg and while incubating he hardly eats or drinks and loses a lot of weight. The eggs hatch after eight weeks and the father also looks after the young too. Emus were an important source of meat for Indigenous Australians who used the fat of the emus as well as a bush medicine and there has been in recent times some evidence that emu oil contains anti-inflammatory properties and they also used the, the fat from emus to oil wooden tools and to mix in with ochre to make paint. The First Nations people only killed the birds out of necessity and they used every part of the animal When the Europeans first arrived in Australia, they often tried to kill emus as a food source, but they were very difficult to kill. And incidentally, emu feathers were also used in the hats of the Light Horse Brigade. For farmers in the wheat belt, it wasn't the first time that they'd had trouble with emus. In fact, in previous years, the government had placed a bounty on the emus, 
1929, there were three to 4,000 of them culled in one district alone. But this year, 1932, there were more emus and they were wreaking absolute havoc on the crops. The soldier settlers were thinking about what they could do about these emus. They were already in a bit of a stash with the WA government, as I mentioned, and being former soldiers, they decided that they should appeal to the Defence Minister, who was, at the time, Sir George Pearce. So a deputation of ex-soldiers was sent to meet with Pearce and to request military personnel and machine guns in the fight against the emus. I guess it seemed like a good idea at the time. Sir George Pearce was known as a good politician and a really calm and rational person. In this particular instance, he maybe didn't uh, make the best use of his common sense, and he agreed to send the army into the fight against the emus. A deal was struck. The federal government would provide the troops, the farmers would pay for the ammunition and provide food and accommodation to the troops, and the WA government would pay for transport. For the farmers, it seemed like a great deal and they looked forward excitedly to getting rid of the emus. Pierce decided that helping the farmers was a good propaganda exercise as there'd been some issues with the returned soldiers' settlement scheme. At the same time, the movement for secession was gaining steam in Western Australia. There was a real push for WA to secede from the rest of the Commonwealth. And in fact, this whole movement is another story that I'll cover sometime soon. But one way or another, Pierce decided that helping the farmers was a good propaganda exercise, and so he decided to send along a cinematographer from Fox Movie Tone to take a movie of the efforts against the emus. Now, in October 1932, the promised military troops arrived in WA. They were under the command of Major G.P.W. Meredith, and it was a very small group, being only two troops, Sergeant S. McMurray and Gunner J. O'Halloran. They had two Lewis guns, which were early machine guns used in World War I, and they also had 10,000 rounds of ammunition, which seems quite optimistic against an estimated 20,000 emus. The military campaign was delayed because of rain, but on the 2nd of November, the men travelled to Campion and spotted 50 emus. The emus were out of range of the guns, and so the local farmers tried to herd the emus towards the gunners. But if you've ever had anything to do with emus, you'll know that herding them is absolutely impossible. The emus scattered. On that day, the troops were able to kill about a dozen emus. At this rate, it's going to take them a while to get through the 20,000 emus. On the next attempt, the 4th of November... Meredith decided to position his men near a dam where they could wait for the birds to come and drink. So they did this and after a little while, more than 1,000 emus were spotted coming down for a drink. And when they got close enough, the gunners opened fire. Of course, the emus scattered immediately. They only managed to kill 12 birds before the gun jammed. Do you think this could possibly be karma? Well, maybe. They didn't spot any more birds that day. At this point, Major Meredith decided to move south, where the birds were apparently a bit more tame. There, he had a very bright idea. He was going to mount one of the guns onto the back of a truck. Now, can you imagine this scenario? The paddocks were, of course, only very roughly cleared, and they were driving at full speed with a gun mounted on the back of a truck, trying to chase down these emus who run very fast 
and very erratically. As you might guess, this wasn't a very successful exercise. The poor gunner didn't manage to fire any shots. One of the farmers, who had come along in his own truck, managed to run down an emu in his truck. And, here we have another little bit of karma, the bird got tangled in the steering gear, which caused the farmer to swerve and take out a whole length of fencing before he could get his car under control again. So you might say that things at this point are not going overly well. By the 8th of November, so that's six days after the first engagement, 2,500 shots had been fired. That's one quarter of their ammunition, and probably around 200 emus had been killed, although estimates varied from 50 up to 500 birds. There was negative coverage in the press, and so after the 8th of November, the government withdrew the troops. And here's a quote from poor Major Meredith. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. And this seems to be fairly accurate. One emu was run down by a farmer in a truck and it was found to have five bullets lodged in it from a previous day's shooting. So the farmers really weren't happy with the fact that the troops had withdrawn and they continued to lobby the government for support. The government was, perhaps understandably, reluctant to undertake another mission and instead they suggested that they would provide the equipment and the WA government would provide the troops. But apparently there weren't any experienced machine gunners available in Western Australia or maybe just none who were interested in putting up their hands for the job. And so Major Meredith was sent back to the front. And on the 13th of November, the emu war resumed. This time around, it was a little more successful. They killed approximately 40 emus over the first few days. And then after that, by the 2nd of December, they claimed to be killing 100 emus a week. Once again, at that rate, it's going to take them a long time to get through the 20,000 estimated emus that are in the area. Meredith was recalled on the 10th of December. He made a report to Parliament claiming that he had killed the very precise number of 986 birds with 9,860 rounds, so that's exactly one kill for every 10 shots, which sounds perhaps like Meredith was doing some guesstimating there so that his numbers would seem nice and neat. He also very proudly claimed that there were no casualties on their side, and considering that emus weren't in the habit of attacking people, that's quite fortunate. There was quite a bit of mockery in Parliament and Pierce was referred to as the Minister of the Emu War. Another member of Parliament inquired whether any medals should be awarded and the reply was that if medals were being awarded, they should be given to the emus. But back in Western Australia, the farmers were apparently pleased with the progress that the troops had made because in 1934 they again requested military assistance and again in 1943, and again in 1948. Each time the government turned them down, and instead they instituted a bounty system. In 1934, over 57,000 bounties were claimed. So if you thought that maybe the estimate of 20,000 emus in the area was a bit exaggerated, well, there you go, 57,000 emus were killed in the one year in 1934. 
After this, the settlers began to use exclusion barrier fencing to keep the emus out of their crops. And also ammunition was given to farmers by the government so that they could control the emus themselves. And what about the movie that was shot? As I said earlier, Pierce had decided that it was a great idea to send a cinematographer along with with the troops. And this film was shown in cinemas as a preview before movies were shown. This did not get the reaction that Pierce had hoped for, and the city crowd was quite outraged by the treatment of the emus. This film still exists, and it's fascinating and quite funny. I will include a link to a YouTube clip from this this film that was shot of the emu wars. I'll include that in the show notes. The news of the emu war also reached the UK, where there was a bit of an outcry about the attempt to exterminate the emus. But don't worry... Emus are not endangered these days and they're actually listed as of least concern in this country. The Minister for the Emu War, Pierce, didn't do too badly for himself either. He was a senator for 37 years and three months, a record term for the Senate, and that record still stands today. Although the town of Campion didn't survive, the farmers in the wheat belt have continued on with varying degrees of success. And there are still plenty of emus around, of course. And so there we go. That's the story of the emu war. I hope you've enjoyed that. I'd love to get any feedback that you'd like to give me. You can let me know if you enjoyed this, if I've made any mistakes, or if you've got any suggestions. You can reach me at my website, which is www.wildwapodcast.com. You can email me, wildwapodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Carly Florison and I'm on Facebook as well. Just look for Carly Florison Writer. If you would like to um, rate and review and subscribe to this podcast as well, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much. If you're interested in any further reading, you can check out my website and I've got links to the sources that I used for this episode on the website. And once again, that's www.wildwapodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. And like I said, I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Just like to give a quick shout out to my brother, Micah Florison, who did the music for this podcast, and also to Caitlin Edwards, who has done the art for this. You might have noticed that I'm averaging two episodes a month at the moment, and I think that's a pretty good pace, so I'm going to keep that up. Uh, So stay tuned soon for another episode, and I'll see you then.